You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 9. Guess my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and love to open up God's Word for us. And we're going to continue in our series through the book of Genesis, which we have titled God's Story of Creation uh, to Restoration. If you're a guest today, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say and not what I have to say. And so when we come to uh, this time in worship, we're going to continue in worship by uh, hearing God's Word preached. And we call it preaching because we believe the Bible has something to say. And when the Bible says something, that means we are to submit our lives to it. And so we come this morning to learn who God is and what He has done and how we are to respond. So if you, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those hard-covered uh, Bibles in front of you and turn to page 6 and follow along with us. Directions. Directions. I don't know about you, um, but uh, I'm not great uh, at following directions. Actually, in school, uh, I would get points deducted because I'd be the kid that would take the test and run through everything, and then your teacher would be really funny. For the, you teachers in the room who did this, shame on you, but at the top you said, just put your name and don't do any of the questions uh, in, on this test and then sign your name at the bottom and you'll get 100. That wasn't me. I was going to run through all of, those direct, all of those questions, and I would be the only one doing it. Everybody's waiting on me because I didn't follow directions. Or uh, maybe you're the kind of person that you get, you buy something, and uh, you have to put it together, and uh, you, you don't want to read the directions. So you try to put it together, and it looks almost perfect, but you're missing like three bolts. And so by the time you get it done, it falls apart because you didn't follow the directions. So oftentimes, uh, we go through life trying to figure out what are we supposed to do? What are we, how are we supposed to live? What, what does this look like? Well, if we're going to figure out those directions... We need to go to the God who made all things and the God who has given us directions to to experience life the way that He has designed it. But if we look out into the world, we see that there are people who are trying to live opposite or without those directions. God gives us a roadmap, so to speak, on what it looks like to live a life that would be honoring to Him. Now we come to Genesis chapter 9. It's really kind of the last part, part 3 of the story of Noah. We, we saw God come to Noah in Genesis chapter 6. And he says, I'm going to flood the earth. I'm going to judge it because of sin. Sin has so corrupted the earth and corrupted humanity. I'm going to destroy everything except you and your family, and the animals that I'm going to send to you. And we saw last week in chapters 7 and 8 that God actually does what He says He's going to do, and He floods the entire world and everything is destroyed. And Noah comes off the ark when God tells him to, and he worships him. And now we pick up into Genesis chapter 9, which could be, could be years later. So this is what we're going to see in chapter 9. God covenants with Noah to see life multiplied and protected. But Noah gets drunk and Ham disgraces him, showing sin remains. 
If you remember, back at the end of chapter 8, God makes a covenant, which we're going to look here at this covenant. But what God says is that man's sinfulness is from his youth. God knows that sin still remains. Now we're going to get a picture through the story of how that sin remains. But if we are God's people, if we have called the name of Christ, not, not with Noah. Noah doesn't know that the Messiah is coming. He doesn't know that would be Jesus. He's waiting on that promised seed. But we have Christ. And if we have Christ, what does a life look like with Jesus? It looks the same way that he's prescribed here in Genesis chapter 9. It's this, the people of God can experience the blessing of God by living out the covenant of God. You see, the covenant of God enables life and righteousness. The covenant of God is Him saying, this is how you will live because this is who I am. And the covenant is going to be a huge piece of what we look at both today and for the rest of Genesis. That God is a covenant-making God. And if God is a covenant-making God, then who are the people of God? There are people who walk in His covenant. There are people who trust His promises. There are people who live the way that He says we should live. So when we get here to Genesis chapter 9, the question we must ask is this, what does a covenant life look like? What should the people of God look like? After all things have been destroyed and God has now given Noah His commands and covenanted with Him, what should they do? What should you do? So I want to show you three aspects of the covenant here in Genesis chapter 9. Three aspects of the covenant in Genesis chapter 9. First aspect. I want you to see the directions for the promise. The directions for the promise. As I told you, Noah stepped off of the ark. He has worshipped through a sacrifice. And it culminates in God being pleased. God is so pleased that he's, He vows never again to destroy the world. Now here in chapter 9, we will see God speak directly to that promise. We're going to zoom in here. The flood was a destructive act against sin as God's judgment against the wickedness of the world. But it was also a recreative force in God's world. God brought new order to things. He wiped out sin. He now has brought back His world. In light of that recreation, Noah must listen to the directions of God. He must listen to the covenant that God is making with him. So, look there at verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now there is a promise, and the promise must produce life. There's a covenant promise, and the promise must produce life. Noah is blessed. Remember from Genesis chapter 1, God blesses Adam and Eve. They are enabled and commanded to multiply. It's the same command here in chapter 9. Noah, and we're going to see this through the whole chapter, Noah is the second Adam. But is he going to be a better Adam, is the question. And he is where we all come from. Our origins trace back to him and his sons. And he will, it will be him and his sons that spread across the earth. And this is a future look at the blessing of God, which we'll see in Genesis chapter 10. Right? God says, be fruitful, multiply. The blessing will be that you multiply, that life is produced 
all across the world. And so God says, I want you to do what I told you to do in the beginning. And consider this command. Consider the blessing for just a moment. God is sending humanity back out into the world to spread over it and rule it. But God knows man's heart from Genesis chapter 8. God knows that man, that we men and women are sinful, that our intentions are wicked, that at the very core of who we are, we are sinful. But it's God's grace in the midst of that sin that He says in light of that, I'm still calling you to spread out all over the world. It is God's grace, once again, that we've seen here. It is clear that God is gracious to His people despite our shortcomings and despite our sin. Now, when we look here at the blessing itself, we're called to multiply. Multiplication is an important piece of human life. God has called us to reproduce, to have children. We talked about this when we saw it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with the cultural mandate. And as Christians, we also understand in the new covenant in Christ, we can multiply disciples. Those who have, we who have experienced true life in Christ, we now get to share that life through evangelism and share that life through discipleship so that we see a disciple making movement all across the world. This is why we're here. We're not here just to check a box off. And we're not here just to do the right thing. We're here to see God spread disciples all across the world. This was God's plan from the beginning. God's plan in Genesis 1, God's plan in Genesis 9 is no different than God's plan in Matthew 28 or in Revelation 22. He has a vision of a world that is filled with people who worship Him and who are disciples of Jesus Christ. We're enabled now through the Spirit to multiply disciples, to see God's world brought to the potential to give Him the most glory. Now, let me be clear, parents, your children are your first mission field. Your first mission field. Our children are the place that we need to be giving the gospel to every day, demonstrating it, telling, reading about it. It is your responsibility now to bring your children up in the instruction of the Lord so that they may be one day disciples who worship God. It is our responsibility. This is what is encompassed here in this blessing. The multiplication happens so that it's not just that we have children, but we have children who will worship God and help others do the same. But I want you to notice these new dynamics here in Genesis chapter 9. Look at verse 2. It says, The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on earth and every bird of the sky and every creature that crawls on the ground and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you as I gave the green plants. I have given you everything. Humanity will indeed spread across the world as God intends and they will rule over the animals just as Adam and Eve did, but something is different. God says that now, Noah and your family, you will be able to eat animals for food. This is why he says there's terror and fear because now humanity, as God's uh, kingly priests, we now have uh, authority over the animals. We, we can now not just command them to do something, we can now decide to eat them for food. The harmony that was in the garden is now broken completely. 
The garden is just a, just a memory. A vapor of things that were there. And so now we can eat animals for food, but we must respect them. And so the covenant of God must not just lead to spreading of God's people, but it must lead to the protection of life. So secondly, the promise must protect life. Look at verse 4. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. Blood represents life. It's the spiritual and symbolic uh, idea of life. When an animal has life in it, you're not to eat it. It is not good for you because God protects life. Look at verse 5. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. From the start of Genesis, especially in these last few chapters, we have seen how precious life is to God. And you may say that sounds kind of ironic. God has just destroyed everything. But that's the point. God cares deeply about life, deeply about his creation. And sin had so broken it that God was willing to destroy it. But not all of it. Because God knew that the life that the wickedness had spread all across the earth in Genesis chapter 6, He knew that that wasn't true life. And so God says, no, I'm going I'm to remake this. I'm going to do something about this. And so He destroys everything. But I'm going to protect a few so that life may be reborn it may start again but God once again he places this priority on life God is the Lord of life and his people must be people for life God places a standard on life right, of course you should not kill an animal and eat from it with its blood in it but more than that you should never kill another human being and God places this standard and so Someone who kills another, their life will be demanded. Verse 6 is an outworking of God's decree about life. Life is valuable. Life will be taken seriously and so seriously that if anything is done, if a murderer comes and takes someone's life, their life will be taken. But notice here, it's important. God now gives the authority and the responsibility to humanity, but not just to one, not just to those who have been harmed or to the family of those who have been harmed. It's given to society. It's not given to the individual. Humanity does not have the, the unlimited power. It's got to be checked. So this is where the idea of government comes from. And so God institutes government in a society so that they have the responsibility to protect and promote life. That's what a government should do. And they are to help their people flourish. Oftentimes, as we see on the news, and maybe you've experienced that in your own life, governments often overstep that balance and they abuse that power. Christians must work, especially here in our context, in a, in a government that allows us to lobby and to work towards uh, ends and goals. We must work to protect life. And promote life. Of course, we must continue to 
fight against abortion. And we must care for women who are considering these. We must care for the children that are born now because abortion is not a legal right anymore. And praise God for that. We must care for those who are at the end of their lives and not just push them aside and say, you know what, the best thing to do is just to let them die. No, life is precious. And we must protect it, no matter the cost of it. We should consider adoption because there are kids who do not have parents. Many of you have done foster care. Some of you maybe even have adopted. This is a demonstration of a people who care deeply about life. We should care about families. We, we, we should help our society understand the, the beauty of the family and how it promotes life in our society. And there's lots of things that we could talk about. But at the end of the day, we must understand that life Particularly the life and the family is what's going to promote more life. Maybe one you don't think about. Maybe one you think is on the other side of the political aisle. That would be immigration. Of course, there are laws that we have to uphold and there are things that we have to do and decisions we have to make. But we must start at a place that these lives matter. Protecting and promoting life is the job of, yes, a government, but it may be more so the job of God's people. And so may we start at a disposition that in the same place that God does, that every life matters. And it's the foundations that we can care for God's creation and God's people. Because look at verse 7. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread over the earth and multiply over it. This is what's going to happen. God's blessing will happen. The question is, are we going to live inside of that? God's covenant tells us how we're to live. We must we must cherish that. It must be important to us because it's important to God. And we can live out the covenant of God by following the directions of the promise and thereby receiving the blessing of God. So the first aspect that we, we saw the directions for the promise, but now we're going to see the displaying of the promise. Look down there at verse 8. We're going to see God had promised Noah they would not destroy the creation in chapter 8. Now, God will pledge himself by declaring a sign to the entire world. So look at, at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons uh, with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife on the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I will establish my covenant with you that never again will any creature be wiped off by the floodwaters. There will never be a flood to destroy the earth. So there, there is the sign of the covenant. There's the sign of the, covenant, of the covenant. That's how he displays it. The blessing of God can be enjoyed by following the directions of the covenant. But here we see what God is going to do. This is what God is going to respond with. God will never again destroy the earth in this same way. He will establish a covenant with Noah and his sons and all of creation and therefore us. There's confirmation of what God's going to do and what he, what he said he will do. Right in Genesis chapter 6, God says, I'm going to make my covenant with you, Noah. We get to chapter 8, God says, I will never again flood the earth. And now we come to this covenant again. This word covenant will be used seven times in verses 8 through 17. Moses is telling us, the writer of the story, is saying this is a perfect covenant. It will not be broken. God will not go against His word. 
God is the initiator of the covenant. And this covenant is a covenant of grace. Look at verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You know the sign. It's a bow. It's a rainbow. Many of you, even if you've not grown up in church, know the story of Noah. And it, when it's in the sky, it declares a promise that God will never again flood the world. Think about that. Actually, this word bow is generally used when it's talking about bow and arrow in war. That's when this word is most often used. So, so God says, I'm going to hang up my bow in the sky for you to see. I will never again pick up my bow and cause destruction on the earth. I will never again reign war on the earth. But this will be a sign of peace. But the rainbow says there is now peace between God and creation. And this bow is a sign of the, of the validity of the covenant. This is the bow that will tell future generations, thousands of years later, when we see a rainbow, it is a rainbow that declares God will never again destroy creation. And notice its effect. Look at verse 14. Whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds and I will look at it and I will remember the permanent covenant between God and all living creatures on earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and every creature on earth. So there's not just a sign of the covenant. There's a signal. There's a signal. And it's a signal to trust God. It's telling us when we see that, we are called to trust God. Right? When you're in a car and you turn your right signal on, it's telling the person behind you that you're going to turn right. When we see that, that rainbow in the sky, it's a cause for us to know that we are to trust God. He is to remember he will remember the covenant promise that he made with creation. God is saying, I will perpetually remind myself to never again flood the world. This word remembers the same word in Genesis chapter 8. Where it's this word of faithfulness. That God will remember his covenant. That he will act and be and do exactly as he said he would. God keeps his promises. Why is this important? Why is it important that we see this word remember and that God says, I will remember? Well, here's the thing. God's omniscient. God doesn't need to remember. God doesn't need to be reminded. So God puts this bow up in the sky so that you can know that God is true to His word. It's yes, that when God sees it, He will never again flood the earth. But He doesn't need to be reminded. The reminders for us of God's grace and His faithfulness that God makes with creation despite its sinfulness. God's going to preserve life. God's going to protect it. He will not do this ever again. And should we not be, as we just talked about, people who protect and promote life? And if God is omniscient, when He will remember His covenant, oh, and on top of that, He's going to put a a rainbow in the sky, you can trust Him. 
It's, it's, a double, it's a double measure of His faithfulness. It's a bow of peace that we now have with God. And we've seen God give directions now. We've seen God display the promise. But now we're going to see a danger to the promise. We've seen God say, these are the things you're to do. This is how you're going to remember. But now, we're going to see danger to that promise. Look at verse 18. Noah's sons who came off the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Now remember, Noah is the second Adam. God has restarted creation. It has a new head. Noah is the head of creation. So Moses brings back to mind his sons and how they will spread across the earth. And this short connecting thought moves the story along as it could have been years, decades even, after the flood. So the question still remains, where's this seed of promise? Where is this son? Will Noah be the, the promised son? Will his sons be the promise? And we'll get our answers here in the passage, but it's important that you understand Moses is reminding us of the reality of what's about to happen. And so as we look here at this last section of the story, I, hear, I want you to have these two thoughts in your mind. There's a danger to the promise, and here's why. Sin remains active, and sin leads to shame. Sin remains active, and sin leads to shame. Look, remember those as we walk through these verses. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. He drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Noah was a man of the soil, meaning he was a farmer. He worked the soil like his great, 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 great grandfather Adam. This was a call back to Genesis 2 where Adam is called to work and keep the ground. But Noah doesn't do a better job. Instead of offering his work to the Lord in worship by enjoying God's good creation, Noah gets slapped drunk. This is not a pretty picture. It's not good. It's often a picture that we don't talk about with Noah. He's so drunk that he passes out naked. Now, let me be clear. Alcohol is not sinful. It's not sinful for us to taste it, but it is sinful to be drunk. And the scriptures are clear about being drunk. And so we must be very cautious of thinking about alcohol in general. I think you need wisdom. And so here, clearly, it doesn't give us a, a prohibition against drinking, but it gives us a prohibition against being drunk. And now it, it does, the story presents Noah, a man who was righteous. Remember what, what Genesis 6 said. A man who walked with God in deep shame. The wine of his garden has led him into disgrace. It is clear that he is not the seed of the woman. Now, if you think that's bad, let's look at verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took the cloak and placed it over both their shoulders and walking backwards, they covered their father's nakedness and their faces were turning away and they did not see their father naked. Now, on the surface of things, you may, not, you know, you may be wondering, well, what was so bad about that? In our culture, families deal with privacy in different ways. We raise our children to understand privacy, but that can be different in each household. But for Israel, when they heard this, this would have been shocking. 
Noah is righteous. He walks with God. He's blameless. And this is the man whom we find drunk and naked? This was clearly and extremely shameful for Noah. And it takes it to another level when someone sees it and someone talks about it. Now, to understand fully, let's continue in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what, it ha- what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan is cursed. That should cause a red flag. Ham was the one who saw him. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tent of Shem. And let Canaan be Shem's slave. So what in the world is going on here with Noah? Why did Noah respond in such a harsh manner? It's the first time we hear Noah speak at all in the story. In all of Genesis. It's the only time he talks. And the only thing he says is a curse. On top of that, this is the first person in history to curse someone. Now, Some think that Ham's actions here, Ham's sin, is some sort of sexual act against his father or even his mother. There's a connection with the, the terms that are used here. I don't think that's what's happening. I think we need to take verses 22 and 23 together to understand what happens. If this was some some sexual act, they, they would not be able to rectify. His brothers would not be able to rectify the situation in the way they do. Right, so they go in, not looking at their father. They cover him, and they do this walking backwards. So when Ham saw his father, there was a lot going on in this one action. Think about it this way. I don't know about you, but when I went to go get my wisdom teeth taken out, they put me under. And, I, and they asked, you know, you know, how far do you? I want, I want really under. I don't want to know anything that's going on. I don't want to know at all. I don't want to remember anything. So they put me under, and I sign all that paperwork, and I'm reciting Psalm 23 because I'd never been under, under before, and I'm like freaking out. And so they, they put me under, they take my teeth out, and Ashley comes and gets me. Well, what does she do? Because when I come out of there, I, all I remember was I was, fly, I was flying on some magical carpet. That's all I remember uh, what happened after that. And so she, what does she do? She films me, right? And uh, she, gets, she gets a good, uh, a good uh, video for, I don't even know if that video still exists or if she was able to because actually I was in such a, uh, she was listening to the directions uh, of, the, of the surgeon and she actually got sick uh, afterwards because they were t- telling her how to take care of me. But you, you, you know these videos, right? You know that they, you take pictures of somebody and they're saying crazy things, right? So why do you do that? You do it because it's a little funny because in that moment we're, trying to enjoy someone else's pain, although you shouldn't. That's bad. Don't do that, okay? So we understand that this is kind of mocking, it's kind of funny, but it doesn't take us very long that we've seen worse videos, right? We've seen videos of people being taken advantage of. And we've we've saw people drugged and those kinds of things. And this this is really what's happening here. Noah is incapacitated. He's not able to to think he's not able to to act or respond in the same way that those videos and those really bad situations are used to humiliate and disgrace someone Noah is being humiliated and disgraced here by his son this is what Ham does Ham's look is something of a lingering gaze he stops right in some way he found amusement by his father being drunk and naked he then disrespects his father by Mocking him to his brothers. It's not that, oh, I saw that. Let me turn away and let me, let, me, let me fix that. It wasn't that. He didn't repent. 
Right? He didn't say, oh, I saw, you know, please forgive me. That's not what he did. He, he doesn't experience shame or regret, which is, which is actually the irony here. He should feel the shame that's happened to his father. And then let's just take one time out, one pause for just a second. What we've just seen now in Genesis chapter 9, is going to, we're going to see a pattern throughout the book of Genesis. God will establish a covenant with his people or he'll recall that covenant with his people. And then sin is going to be highlighted as a danger to the covenant. And then God is going to be faithful to his promises despite sin. That's what's going to happen throughout the book of Genesis. God gives a covenant. He recalls the covenant. We mess it up. And God says, you know what? I'm still going to be faithful to that covenant. And so now Noah's response is swift. It may be severe, but look at the curse. And look at the blessing that he lays out. Notice here, Noah curses Canaan. Who is Canaan? Well, we've been told. And if you look at chapter 10, Canaan is the youngest son of Ham, if you take it into that order. So, so, so that, that should cause a red flag in your mind. What's, what's happening here in the story? This is not an incantation. It's, it's, and I don't even think this is a legitimate... This is not God cursing Canaan. This is Noah cursing Canaan. It's like a prayer. It's like a, a last will, if you might think of it that way. But notice, too, that, that Noah blesses the God of Shem. He doesn't bless Shem. He blesses the God of Shem. Right? If you recall, Moses left his breadcrumbs through the story. Right? You may be wondering, why does Noah curse Canaan and not Ham who sinned? But this is where the sin is driving us to. In verse 18, Moses highlighted that Ham was the father of Canaan. And now the story uses Noah's reaction and his curse as a pointing forward to the threat to God's people. If there is a danger of shame and sin to, to Noah and his son, there, there is a bigger threat to God's people, and that is Canaan, the people of Canaan. So Canaan is a real people. It's a real place that they in, in a lot of ways, remember, when Israel is hearing this story, they're about to enter that promised land. They're about to enter Canaan. And so Canaan is a real place. They are unrighteous. They are wicked. They are morally reckless, just like Ham is. They have no sin that they would be regretful or repenting for. They experience no shame. It is this people that Israel will be called to conquer and to take possession of that promised land. Now, let me be very clear. No Israelite here in this story would be, would be sad or would be, uh, would be feeling sorry for Canaan. This is why they are cursed. Not because of their ancestor, but because they walked in the ways of their ancestor, Ham. They fully take on sin. This is why they're cursed. And Noah, he curses Canaan. And Moses uses this to point the people of God forward to say, this is the danger. Will you look like them or will you succumb to their ways of unrighteousness? Or will you walk in the covenant that I've given you? Now let me make a quick aside about verse 26. This verse has been used to argue for and to hold the practice of slavery. That's a complete and gross misuse of this text. This isn't about any kind of ethnicity. This is about God and what God is doing for His people. This isn't about Shem. And it's not even about Ham. It's about God and His blessing 
and God going to bring the promise from that blessing. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Moses is helping us now. He's honing in now. Noah and his sons, we get to Shem, and out of Shem's line, we are going to trace that seed. We're going to trace that promise. When is the son coming who's going to defeat the serpent? That's what Moses is helping us do here. And the people of God are contrasted with the people of Canaan. And they're contrasted with the people of Canaan throughout the book of Genesis, into Exodus, into Judges, all throughout the Old Testament. You have God's people, Israel, and you have, in reality, Satan's people, Canaan, because they live in wickedness. The danger is, will Israel look like Ham and his descendants? Will Israel become like Canaan? Or will they walk in righteousness and experience the blessing of God through the covenant of God? The question is now left to us. Will we walk in righteousness? Will we experience the blessing of God through the covenant of God? By walking with Him. Now look how the story ends in verse 28. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood, and so Noah's life lasted 950 years, and he died. Sin still reigns, and we still wait on that promised son. When we consider chapters 6 through 9 as a whole, it's hard to imagine Noah is this way. It's hard to imagine what has just taken place. Wasn't he a righteous man? Yes. But he was the problem. The problem before the flood. That sin is in here. Sin is not out there. Sin is in here. And so Noah, he, he died. That's his fate. And that's the fate of his children, which we're going to see through the book of Genesis. Sin brings death into the world. And here's the thing, church. Sin and unrighteousness is the only thing that Noah can give us. Sin, righteousness, and death. There's nothing else you can get from Noah. You can learn from his life, but it can't change you, and it can't make you right with God. But Christ, in the garden, does not sin, and does not turn away from God's ways, and he submits to God's plans. He is now the seed, the promised one who crushes evil and unrighteousness and wickedness. It's in the gospel that we see Christ came into the world, being born of a virgin, living a perfect life. He walked with God. He walked in God's covenant. He was the blameless one who never sinned. That offered up his life on the cross in the same way that God judged the entire world, God judges sin at the cross. And Jesus endures that cross. And He doesn't just endure it. He hangs naked on the cross, bringing shame upon Himself. He takes the shame of our own sin and takes on the judgment of God so that we might be reconciled to Him. This is what the Gospel does. This is what Jesus does, that He takes on our sin and the judgment of God and the shame of our sin. And He dies. And He's buried. But He doesn't stay dead. Noah does not come back to life. But Jesus is raised to new life. This is the promised one. 
This is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus endured our shame so that we may experience new life. If you don't know Jesus this morning, my question to you is how are you dealing with that guilt and that shame? Because it will eat you alive. And you will not be able to do anything with it. The only thing that can do anything with it is Jesus who takes on that sin and takes on that shame and took on your judgment because of your guiltiness. And all that we have to do, simple but difficult, is to submit our life in faith and trust to Him. That He is God's Son, the perfect seed, now raised to new life, who reigns and can make you right with God. Who can help you experience the covenant of God and the blessing of God because He kept it perfectly. So church, I ask you, are you walking in the covenant with Christ? He is what will help you walk in that covenant. We can't do it our own. And in Christ, we've now been brought into a family to help each other do that together. So that we, so that we may walk in the covenant. We can experience the blessing of God in Christ. Pray with me. God, I pray that we will be a people who submit our lives to You, who, who walk with You, because we know that true life and true blessing can only come by walking in what You've promised and walking in Your covenant. I pray that Your Word will reign over us and drop over us into our hearts so that we may be motivated to love You more than anything else. That we may be motivated to walk in Christ's likeness, to obey the directions that You've set out for us because we can trust You. And because sin, You've dealt with it. May we walk with you. We love you. And we ask this in Jesus' name.